so we're going to talk through First Timothy today. It's really just the intro. I'm going to introduce you to the people that are uh, prominently involved in this letter. And I think we're going to have a great time over the next few months just beginning the study of this amazing letter that was written from a mentor to a mentee, co-ministers, uh, people that just deeply loved each other. And this is one of those pastoral epistles. It's written uh, to a pastor about the heartbeat of the church. And it is really evident that we as a society of, of Christians need this kind of pastoral writing to us. Though it's written in the first century, it is very current for the 21st century. There are all kinds of things that you and I are going to just say, wow, how remarkable is the living word of God that speaks to us 2,000 years later so clearly. Now, through our study, I'm confident that the Holy Spirit is going to build up our beliefs and help us to correctly shape our thoughts and our way of life, both individually and corporately as a church family. So let's just look at the first couple of verses today, and uh, we'll move forward next week into a, several more. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Let me pause there, and then we'll get to verse 2 in just a moment. Now, each of us has a story, and Paul has a story of life as well, and his is a story of redemption. For the majority of you in this room, your story is filled with redemption as well. So, as you know, Saul, who is also goes by the name of Paul, those are the two, two names of the same person. And the reason why there's difference there is because if you're from Mexico, your, your name might be pronounced Juan, and if you're in the United States, it's pronounced John. Sort of the same way with Saul and Paul. If you're of Hebrew people, then you're going to be called Saul. And if you're among those of the Romans or those of the Greek culture, then you're going to go by Paul. And that's exactly what Saul or Paul was doing. When he is heavily investing in people that are Hebrew... In the beginning of his ministry, he goes by Saul. But when his heart was set on the Gentiles by the Spirit of God, and he's living among the Romans, and his heart is given to them, then he goes by the name of Paul. So as he starts that first missionary journey, you'll start to hear his name become Paul way more than you'll hear it named Saul. For the beginning of this message, I'm going to go by Saul, because that's the period of life that we're reading about. Now, previously, Saul had attempted to gain access to God through hard work and unrelenting determination. Hey, if that's you, if you're here today and your effort is proving to be futile, you can't strive hard enough and, and earn enough to where you feel God is going to be satisfied with you, that's a good thing because God is not going to be satisfied with our hard work. He's not going to be satisfied with our accomplishments spiritually. That's the reason why we need a Savior. We need a Savior who will wipe away all of that diligence that we have striving for God. And that's what Jesus has done. Jesus said, hey, all of you who are tired and weary, come to me. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And his yoke is one of mercy and grace. It's one of forgiveness and love. 
So he says, connect to me and you will be in relationship with God. Connect with me and you'll have eternal life with my father. But Saul didn't get that. Saul thought that it was hard work and determination that would prove his diligence to God and his devotion to God. And he became a religious zealot. That is, he had all the zeal in his religion. And he was willing to carry out every measure necessary in order to prove that what he believed was true and right. It actually wasn't. In fact, he became a brutal, hostile persecutor against people of the way. Now, the way is that of Christ Jesus. It is that Christ is Messiah. It's the teachings of Christ. It's the life of Christ. And people who followed after Christ were called people of the way. And Saul was determined in his diligence for God that he would eradicate those people. And he would eradicate their message. So he was born in the mountainous region of Tarsus, which is modern-day Turkey, and he had a distinguished Jewish pedigree. In fact, by his own proclamation, he writes in, uh, to the church at Philippi, I was circumcised on the eighth day in the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, so as he's looking back on his life of, of um, diligent, prosperous, promoting, struggling, striving kind of way to religion, as he looks back on that, he says, man, that was all a waste. Uh, that was all like a trash heap in comparison to what I know now and what I have now in Christ Jesus. But he looks back on that, and we'll call it a pedigree, and he says, I had it all together. If people of religion thought that they could have it, I had it more. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day in the 21st chapter of Genesis. It prescribes that the Hebrews be circumcised on the eighth day. Paul said, from the very start, I was given to the law. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel. Now, as you know, Jewish people want to root back their history, their lineage, all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who became known as Israel. And Saul says, I could do that. I could show you that I'm a Hebrew. I go all the way back to the patriarchs. Of the tribes, I'm a tribe of Benjamin. That is, of the 12 tribes, this is the one that's most known for its fierce warriors, its, its uh, tenacity, if you will. It's a small tribe, no doubt, but it was one that was very given to King David. In fact, if you think about some of the other people who had come from this tribe, you're talking about people like uh, Ehud, who, who really was a valiant warder, warrior who gave Israel freedom from the Moabites. Great, great victory. King Saul came from the tribe of Benjamin. Mordecai and Esther bravely were from the tribe of Benjamin and rescued the people of Israel from complete annihilation. So Saul is saying, of the tribes, I'm of the most valiant. I'm of the most historically fierce as a swordsman. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Meaning that he, yes, lived in Rome, but he still very much was given to the culture of Hebrews. He was very much given to the tradition of Judaism. He was very much given to the practices of who he was as a Hebrew. He was a Pharisee. We might call him a fundamentalist. He was one who was a legalist, one who believed that the Mosaic law, if you adhered to it absolutely, strictly with discipline, hard work would result in works of righteousness. Can I just tell you, 
The law does not move us to works of righteousness. The law actually moves us to prove that we are unrighteous. There's nothing about the law of God that I can strive for and achieve, but everything about the law points out that that is exactly the opposite of who I am. I'm a law breaker. I'm not a law keeper. And Saul would come to that conclusion as well, that though he had given his life to keeping the law and teaching other people how to keep teach uh, keep the law he recognized in the end he was a law breaker as well and he needed mercy he needed a rescuer from that now if you remember his history he was raised in the tradition of Gamaliel which is a, a great rabbi of the day and he was being taught by his rabbi how to be a lawyer how to be a lawyer in the mosaic law in fact, Saul had it in his mind, I believe, in his heart, that he was going to be a member of the Sanhedrin, that he was going to be among the supreme court, if you will, of the Jewish people. And he was trained in that way, and he was given to that way. At the height of his career, he made every effort possible to destroy Christianity. He would imprison Christians. He would kill Christians. In fact, eight the eighth chapter of Acts talks about that. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house to house. And he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. But now if you know his story, God radically intercepted and changed Saul's life story and direction. He was traveling one day to Damascus. He was there with letters given to him by the high priest to bring back any Christians that he came across so that they might be imprisoned there in Jerusalem. And as he was going to that, on that journey, a brilliant, glorious light stopped him in his track. Quite literally, he falls face down and he hears the voice of Jesus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, all that he was doing against the people of the way was being done against Jesus. And he is now face to face with the very one that he had been trying to annihilate. Everything changed that day. The brilliant light blinded Saul. And those who were traveling with him had to actually lead him on into Damascus where he awaited the directions of the Lord. He was so overwhelmed by that, taken aback by that, that he didn't eat or drink for three days. Now, eating, no problem for three days. Drinking, that's a big problem. He was completely consumed with what he had experienced. Nothing else mattered to him. He needed to know more about Jesus. He was rehearsing in his mind all those things that he had been doing against the way, against the word, against Christ the Messiah. And now he had been intercepted by him. And he was completely humbled by that. Now God in his grace was making it so that he would understand the more fullness of the gospel and he sent a man by the name of Ananias to him and Ananias uh, departed the house as Acts chapter 9 says and laying his hands on Saul he said to him brother Saul the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled by the Holy Spirit and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. 
For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of God. What a transformation. One who not just denied that Jesus was the son of God but now actually proclaims that Jesus is the son of God. I just wanted you to know this in the story that there is transformative power in the gospel and it is astounding. The gospel will change you. The gospel will proclaim things into your life and truths into your life that you might have rejected and even fought against. But once you get them, once the gospel is open to you and God gives you the ability to see, it's like scales fall from your eyes and suddenly you begin to discover the truth of the gospel and everything about you is different. You see differently, you hear differently, you think differently, you say words differently and you go differently. Let the gospel transform you. That's the wonder of this story that God is still changing people. When you say, oh, that person will never change, God is still changing people and he's doing it in astounding ways. So here's a man who's marching in opposition to God and the people of God, yet Jesus intercepts him, stopping him in his tracks. He saves him and then he commissions him on the very gospel that he had tried to stomp out. So God may be desiring to radically change you you might be saying I don't think God's going to be able to change me I want it so bad but I don't think it can happen to me perhaps you're moving forward in destruction I'm not just talking about eternal destruction that's a big deal that's the biggest deal of all but some of you are marching in destruction in your life right now and your family is in peril Some of you, your life is moving towards ruin right now with decisions that you are contemplating or decisions that you are making or some that you have recently made. I want you to know that God is here today and he is wanting to transform you. He wants to set you on a different path. He wants to give you a different mindset. He wants to give you a different purpose. You might say, oh no, the the damage has already been made. Listen, if God can rescue Saul, God can rescue you. If God can bring transformation to his life, God can bring transformation to any one of our lives. That's the glory of the gospel. It is an astounding, transformative power of God. So Jesus transformed Saul. He took him from being a gospel rejecter to being a gospel proclaimer. He took him from being a persecutor to one who is persecuted and from someone who is striving in the law to someone who is living in the freedom of grace. And he'll do the same for you. He'll bring transformation to your life today. Though probably not as dramatic God is revealing his word to you, shining his light on your sin and revealing your need for new life. He's opening your eyes spiritually so that you can see and he is giving you ears so that you can spiritually hear. He's giving you spiritual sight and leading people into your life, including this church who will disciple you and he is graciously saving you, eager to fill you with the Holy Spirit and calling you to baptism hey why aren't you saying yes to that why are you going to put that off why are you going to hold back there how about just say yes to him just step towards him in faith say yes now look again at verse 1 of this epistle Paul an apostle 
of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. Now, let's just kind of pick that apart for a moment. Uh, the first thing that might stand out to you is the order of the words that Paul uses, Christ Jesus. In all but one instance of the gospel writers, they usually will write Jesus Christ. Paul has a unique way in writing about Jesus. He most often, but we'll use it the other way, but he most often will write Christ Jesus. You might say, why is that? Why do the other gospel writers not do that very often? Really, there's only one other that does that. Why do all the others say Jesus Christ and Paul says Christ Jesus? Well, I can't answer that, but I'm going to take a stab at it. We'll ask him one day when we get in his presence. But it could be that the other disciples knew Jesus before they knew the divine reality of Jesus. It could be that they knew him as Jesus and then secondly, they came to know, came to know him as Christ. But Paul was different. Paul did not have a relationship with Jesus. Paul met Christ in his divine glory on the road to Damascus. And when he had that overwhelming experience with the Christ, the Son of God, it forever marked him. So his vernacular just changed. His vernacular couldn't help but be Christ Jesus. You and I need to recognize Jesus is not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher. He's not just rabbi. He's not just a healer. He's not just somebody who's good. He is Christ Jesus. In fact, you'll often hear Paul say, Christ Jesus the Lord. You ought to give him his due in that. Not just with your words, but with your thoughts and with your attitudes and with your actions. Let it be, oh, let it be by the power of the word and the spirit of God and by our encouragement to one another that our lives are evident that Christ Jesus is our Lord. And we live and know him in that way. Paul goes on to say that it is he that is an apostle of Christ Jesus. That is, he is identifying himself as one who has been commissioned by the resurrected Christ. He saw the resurrected Christ, heard the voice of the resurrected Christ, and was sent by the resurrected Lord. So he is an apostle, and he obeys the words of Christ Jesus the command of God, our Savior. He obeys God's voice, who is the Savior. He's coming to an understanding in this reality that Jesus is the deliverer, that God is the one who delivers him through Christ from sin and the judgment of sin and rescues him, frees him from that. And that Christ Jesus is our hope. Christ Jesus is our hope. What a radical shift that Saul has here that he thought that his life was full of blameless living of holy righteous law abiding living and once he recognized that he was a man that is marked with sin through and through that he identified himself as the chief of sinners once he recognized that and the glory of the hope that is found in Christ it forever changed how he saw Jesus he saw him as Christ Jesus my hope my hope is not in me obeying the law or doing what is good. It's like the old hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. 
Everything else is just shaky, isn't it? Everything else is quaky. We stand on Christ, fully certain of his hope. So that introduces us to Paul, who's writing this letter. Oh, he has so much to say to us, so much to say to the church today. But I just wanted you to understand where he comes from. He comes from a man who recognizes he is desperate for God's mercy and need of hope. And he pens out this letter with great conviction, but he does so in a place of humbleness. That's the author of the letter. Now, who's he writing to? He's writing to Timothy. He's been in a long relationship with him, some 15 years or so. And he's writing to him as he is pastoring the church at Ephesus. He says to Timothy, my true child in faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now it seems most probable that on his first mission journey, as Paul was moving through this region, a young Timothy, probably an older child or maybe a teenager, heard the gospel message while Paul was preaching there in Derby and Lystra. He heard that and he received Christ Jesus, the truth of Christ, and he humbled himself and submitted his life to Christ from there on out. His mother, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois, were, were there helping him, nurture him in the word of God. Uh, they had the Old Testament truths, and you can teach the gospel in the Old Testament just as clearly as you can teach the gospel in the New Testament. And they were teaching him the way of Christ, who God is, and all that the prophets had said about the Christ and his coming. So when he heard the proclamation of the apostle Paul, and he heard the gospel message, his heart was moved to receive that truth and recognize that Jesus truly is the Messiah. So by God's grace, Timothy was moved with faith to God from the Bible rather than from the pagan ways of his father. See, the scripture helps us to understand that although his mother was Jewish, his father was uh, from Greek origins, which meant their religions were very different. She was a, a follower of God that had been uh, revealed in the pages of the scripture and through the prophets. His father was a, uh, one who had trust in the Greek gods, the pantheon of gods. And man, they had a God for everything. And uh, I would imagine that there, Timothy is in a little bit of a, a perplexing situation. But he heeded the voice of his mother and his grandmother. He understood that the God of the Bible was the true God. I wonder if his father moved him towards the Greek gods. I wonder if he pressed him towards those gods that were false I wonder if his father was blasé about it just didn't didn't really matter he knew that the gods really didn't have power uh, for his own living and maybe he didn't press Timothy I don't know all I know is that Timothy was given to the God of the Bible and when he heard the gospel the good news about Christ the Messiah who is Lord he was given to that and he began to be nurtured and discipled in fact, when Paul would make his rounds again into that area, Paul would hear from followers of Christ who had been nurturing and discipling young Timothy. He would hear about how that young man was growing in his faith and how the Spirit of God was using him in significant ways. And it was obvious that God was calling him to a great measure of kingdom work. 
And so Paul extended to him an, an offering. And that offering was, come join us. Come, come join us in this gospel message. And aren't we grateful for that? Because as a teenager, he probably did not know that the forces of heaven and hell were very much involved in his choice to surrender life to Christ Jesus. That choice would impact his life, it would impact his family, and it would impact us as well. It has impacted the church for two millennia because we have grown because Paul has received Christ and become a pastor and he and Paul had such a relationship that they would uh, have letters written one to another can I just remind us just as a pause for a moment and just skirt down a little off trail parents and grandparents you are God's plan for the most significant spiritual impact that will be on your children you are God's plan for that it's not me it's not our children's ministers you are the most essential strategy for God bringing your children to his kingdom to know him personally now we have our role to support you and we want to share the gospel as many times as you're sharing the gospel we want to reinforce what you're teaching in the home we want to disciple your children as you're discipling we want to disciple you so you can disciple your children I don't think there's anything more beautiful for me but to baptize Alan and his daughter together because that's a, a powerful statement about the gospel transformation but Alan recognizes from this day forward it's his responsibility to nurture Brooklyn in the way that she could go into Christ Jesus and I want to join him in that and you want to join him in that that's the reason why you volunteer in our children's preschool area in our children's elementary school areas and in our middle school and our high school it's the reason why you engage in that because you see the effort that is needed to raise little ones unto God Lois and Eunice had quite an impact on Timothy because as a mother and a grandmother, they recognized that God would, had given them the most significant call to speak the gospel from the Old Testament into that little boy. So if you're a parent or you're a grandparent, some of you are great grandparents, some of you are aunts and uncles. Some of you have influence in children's lives that is different from that. Here's what I'm gonna encourage us have genuine faith in Jesus Christ and be spirit-filled. Let the Spirit of God control you. Read your Bible to your children. Open the Scripture and read the Bible to your children. R read it every night to them. Read it in the morning when they rise. Speak about it as they're coming and going. Have a biblical worldview. That is, talk about current events in light of the Bible. Be unyielding and uncompromising to the truths of the Bible. If you're gonna have the most significant impact that God wants you to have, be unyielding to the truths of the Bible. Listen, don't give an inch to the swaying culture and don't be squirrely about biblical doctrines. Know what you believe and be firmly planted on that which you believe. As the church of Jesus Christ, we must be people of courage and conviction. As words are being redefined in this century and truths are vilified and creation's laws are denied, we must have fortitude to stand on biblical convictions. Squirrely is my word for the day. <laughs> Let it not be said that we are squirrely. 
the highest compliment this church has ever had was from a man in Israel, a Messianic Jew. I told him that I pastored a church. He said, what kind of church? I said, it's a Southern Baptist church. He said, oh, you people are people of the Bible, aren't you? I said, absolutely. Thank you for the compliment. Be a family of the Bible. Be a businessman of the Bible. Be a boss lady of the Bible. Be a friend who is given to the Bible. Be a daddy, a mama, a grandparent of, a, of the Bible. Be convicted in its truths. So our children, our grandchildren, they're not gonna hold on to half-truths. You wonder why children are moving away from the scripture today? You wonder why when they get off to college, they're easily swayed away by professors who are trained to get them to question the faith of Jesus Christ? You wanna know why? Because many times they have half-truths. Who's gonna hold on to half-truths and who's gonna be persecuted when you believe in half-truths? Let the conviction be real. You say, well, it's the 21st century, Randy. It's like the world has moved past. Let the world move past, but you stay grounded in God's truths. The, the, the world will come back around. It's done it for centuries. Have cultures not broken apart because they languish in untruths and they, they live in lies and they embrace ways that are unnatural to creation. Have cultures not done that before? Absolutely they have. But yet here we are. You hold true to God's word. You stay convicted in it. Let the world sway where it wants to. Let the wind blow where it may. But you stand grounded on Jesus Christ and his truths. Regardless of how popular or unpopular it is. Kids are not going to endure suffering and hardship for watered-down versions of a word that God claims to be breathed out by him. They're just not going to do it. So therefore, we must not deny, discount, or discredit any word or statement or principle of the, of the Bible regardless of how the world moves away from it. Some people may think, well, you know, we just need to bend God's word a little bit with the times. But I'm telling you, bending it will break the spirits of people. Bending the word of God is going to break the hearts and the lives of people. It will separate them from the truths of God and from the eternal reality that God wants them to know. And although some will dilute the teachings of God's word, attempting to be careful and sensitive so not to offend people, I cannot imagine anything more hurtful than to keep people from the truth of God's word that will rescue them from the darkness in which they live and give them freedom in the new life in Christ Jesus. Know the truth and teach it. Share it over and over. Timothy came to Christ because his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois nurtured him in the way of God and a gospel presenter came and proclaimed the gospel and he was given to that he came to Christ in a time of hostility yet he flourished why because there were people in his life who loved him enough to invest God's word in his life and so it is for many of you you love people enough to invest God's word in their lives and sure the world is hostile and it's becoming more hostile but it has been this way before and Jesus says it's going to get way worse than this but that doesn't change who he is it doesn't change the power of his word it's still transforming people like crazy just be given to it 
So if you desire your children and grandchildren, family and friends and others to endure in faith, then teach them the whole counsel of God's word. Help them to stand by faith, having real convictions based on the solid truths of the Bible. Hey, there's going to be some subjects that we're going to get to in 1 Timothy that's going to make some of you squirm. We're going to stand on God's word, okay? We're going to say it. We're going to say it with love and conviction because it's the life. It's the light. It's the bread. And it's eternal. So we must be people and a church that knows God's word and holds it with great conviction and integrity. The next generation depends on us knowing and holding and living and sharing, not reducing it, sharing openly with great conviction the word of God. Now, Timothy correctly chose God, the God of the Bible. And when he heard that the long-awaited Messiah had come, then he surrendered his life to him. I want you to know that Jesus, the Messiah, has come and he has made himself known by special revelation of God. He is known to us in Christ Jesus. He has identified himself and witnesses know of his resurrection and talked about it and even gave them their lives in that truth. And if you're coming to that understanding, why don't you surrender your life to him? Why don't you forego the way of your past and why don't you move forward in the way of Christ? Why don't you deny yourself and follow after Jesus who bore a cross for you, bearing your sin and the judgment of God on your behalf that you might be free of that sin and walk in newness of life by his resurrection? Why don't you come to him? By the time Paul and Silas passed through Lystra, they invited Timothy, come join us on this journey. Be given to life in Christ. Plant churches with us. And that's exactly what he did. And 15 years later, as he's now pastoring a church, Paul writes to him this letter. He considers him his true son in the faith. Now, don't let that phrase just go past because that's not just an endearing phrase. There's real genuineness in the relationship there. Now, if you know about the law of God from the Hebrews, you know that having a Jewish mother and a Greek father would make you, the child, illegitimate. And everybody in your culture would doubt you and question you and ridicule you. But here's a man who recognized the newness of life that was given to him in Christ Jesus and extended that offer to Timothy and he received it by grace through his faith. And Paul says, hey, you're no longer illegitimate. You are my true son in the faith. Imagine what that did to that young man. Imagine when Paul says, you are my son and you are true. Imagine when he, understand that he was a, understood that he was a son of God who is made brother to Jesus Christ, a co-heir with him. Imagine when he understood that, the freedom that came to that young man's life. He says, you're my true son in the faith. And then he blesses him. What a way to start the letter. The blessings go like this. Grace, mercy, and peace. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you. Now think about this. Here's Paul, 
who had given himself to working diligently so that he might earn credit for righteousness, always knowing that he was falling short, but striving ever so, blameless from everybody else around, but knowing deep in his soul that God was convicting him of his sin. And then coming to discover grace, God's unmerited favor, so love and forgiveness is given to him when he understood that his life was just transformed and now the one who receives grace just gives grace constantly and so he says to timothy grace to you and when you have grace by god transformed in your life by the grace of god not by your works by the accomplishment of jesus when you have that kind of grace then you recognize it's god's mercy that he has brought salvation to you not by your works but by his mercy that he took away your sin and he imputed his righteousness he gives you the credit of Christ Jesus and he allows his son to bear forth the weight of his justice that's mercy and when you recognize God's grace given to you without merit that is extended in mercy through his son Jesus Christ then you settle into this reality that's brand new peace Peace with God, peace with self, peace with others, and peace with creation. And so what a blessing that is. Maybe, if it doesn't seem too weird to you this week, maybe you'll bless somebody this week with those words. I just want to tell you, God's grace be upon you, his mercy be in you, and peace be realized by you. Grace, mercy, peace. Maybe you'll sign off an email this week. And at the bottom of the email, grace, mercy, peace to you. Maybe you'll bless your children as you've read the Bible and now pray with them as they're going to sleep. Grace to you. Mercy be in you. Peace fill your life. And maybe you'll determine this week by the power of the Spirit in you what God has given to you grace mercy and peace you'll choose to give that to other people and the words you say and the actions you do the reasons why you do it the movements you take it's to extend grace mercy and peace you can do it by the power of Christ in you now let's pray Lord we thank you for your grace and your mercy and peace that is ours in Christ. And we receive that by faith, that you alone could do that. I'm so thankful for Jesus Christ, for he is Christ divine, the Lord. I pray that if there's some in this room who have come to understand this morning their need to trust in you, for your grace and mercy that they might be at peace with you that today they would move in faith and the response would be so genuine because it starts from you I pray Lord for the one who might be wrestling moving in a direction that's in opposition to you I pray Lord your word has stopped them in their tracks and caused them to see the ruin that is forthcoming except that you saved them Rescue them, Lord. Bring transformation to their heart and mind and lives. And maybe there's some in this room, 
that need to make a decision that would honor you and bless you. Maybe it's in the life of this church or in mission or ministry or some effort of reconciliation, some, something, Lord, that you're calling them to. And today's the day that they're saying yes. They're not holding back any longer. They're saying yes to you. God, fortify them with the faith needed that they might walk in that. And I pray Jesus would be honored as he brings transformation to us. We bless you and honor you and worship you and bring glory to your holy name the name that is above all names, the only name by which we can ever be saved. In the name of Jesus, we pray.